Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly public cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. So get started today on DigitalOcean with a free $100 credit at do.co slash cloudcast. That's do.co slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, and this is the big one. This is officially show 400, but this is, you know, if you've listened to the last one, this is a bit of a, a journey, if you will, right? Uh, we're, we're doing four for 400. <laughs> yeah. And the idea here is, is we're just going to kind of look back here. Instead of cloud news, we're going to look back and talk about some of the trends that, that we've seen in some of these, you know, honestly, pretty entertaining at time snapshots, right? And, and this one is all about finances. Um, Corey Quinn is going to be coming up next. And to really talk about a little bit of, of following the money and, and journey uh, all, around all of that. But, you know, let's kind of take a step back over the years and, and, and run through some of the numbers here. And so, Brian, for those that don't know, Brian keeps this, you know, pretty awesome spreadsheet running in the background of, of all of our guests and then funding rounds and acquisitions. And, and it's, it's pretty impressive. So, Brian, why don't you take everyone through some of the numbers and we'll kind of comment as we go through yeah, it, it became it became this hobby once some of the guests on our show would uh, they'd come on our show and then they would get rounds of funding and we thought oh that's kind of cool like you know maybe maybe we were a small part of that obviously we we weren't doing anything to help these folks so we started keeping track of it and then the first company got acquired and, and then a second company got acquired and we were like oh this is kind of cool and what we noticed was we were actually a little bit better than, than most venture capitalists at, at picking early companies, identifying companies to have on the show, and then there being some sort of return on them. So I think, you know, we've, we've now had 400 shows. We've had 40 companies get acquired. So one in 10, uh, I think we've, we've had about $4.5 billion in VC funding that have gone into our companies. Uh, $54 billion in, uh, in acquisitions have come out of those companies. Now, those are a little bit skewed. There's a sort of a top 10 of companies. The, the IBM Red Hat one was, you know, $34 billion of that. So that really skews it. Uh, uh, Microsoft buying GitHub was $7.5 billion and EMC buying Virtustream was, was $1.2 billion. But, you know, that, that's been pretty cool. It's always kind of a, I, I, I've, kept it kind of ongoing because in the back of my mind, I feel like I could always go to, you know, some CIO or CTO who goes, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And I go, well, I think we have just as good a track record as a lot of the VCs out there. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. That's right. And hey, and, and for any of the, the, the VCs out there listening, because we know a couple do, you know, if you, if you ever want anybody to, uh, you know, accept a position remotely, of course, um, you know, as a partner, we're willing to talk. Or just take us for a ride on your yacht. We're open to that too. That's right. That's right. But uh, yeah, no, <laughs> podcasting doesn't buy you a yacht. No, no, small dinghies at best. Yeah, it's been interesting to to watch the VC funding. I think we've, um, you know, we've kind of paid attention to it for a number of reasons. Uh, partially, I think it helps us, you know, kind of know where to where to track the show, right? Are, you know, what trends are real, what trends aren't real. Um, you know, I, I think we've. 
we've looked at some things we've watched. Uh, the other thing that's sort of interesting for us to watch is it gives us a sense of when the valuations are are lower, uh, you know, the trends are fairly early. Sometimes when some of the valuations are really high, um, you know, we're seeing companies that are making making buys at very, very large prices that, you know, in some cases may have been sort of a, a panic move or, a, you know, try and buy their way back into a market. You know, somebody like EMC buying VirtuStream, you know, being way behind in cloud buying that, you know, kind of a panic move or maybe an overbuy. You look at Microsoft buying GitHub, you know, maybe a massively uh, important strategic buy to, to get all those developer mind shares. So, you know, we've always tried to figure out how to make sense of this stuff and track it and so forth. And, um, you know, we, we've had a number of shows that have talked about it, like, you know, folks like, Folks like JJ have been on, you know, he introduced this whole, uh, you know, open source software revenue index that he keeps at uh, OSS.cash. So we'll put a link to. So it's been fun for us to not only learn a lot about these technologies, but also sort of, you know, follow the money and and see where it makes sense and and see if it would help us predict a little bit about where the future was going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the other thing that I would just add to that as well is it's, it's really interesting, because, you know, we do kind of, uh, you know, talk back and forth about this. And we kind of go, okay, that, you know, this person got funding, or or this person got acquired. And, you know, we we like to to look into the crystal ball and kind of go, you know, okay, who's next, or based off of that, maybe this will happen. And, you know, it is, it is at times, you know, again, just like the last one, throwback to a super old show, we once upon a time, we did the fantasy draft. Oh, yeah. Um, um, and I mean, we only, I think we labor did it once. Um, but it was, you know, it was fun, but I, and I also admit too, there was just a ton of startups out there and there was a ton of money out there to where there was a board big enough to where you could hold something like that. Like, honestly, I think we would struggle to even put together a fantasy draft just because of the amount of players, the amount of funding, even though the funding, the money has gone up, the number of players I don't think necessarily has, which has also been a trend. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, we always used to play this game where, uh, you know, when AWS reInvent would roll around, we would look at, you know, the companies that were, you know, new and emerging sort of SaaS type of services or whatever. And it was like, which one of those are going to get picked off? And now you look at Amazon, Amazon's got a hundred different services. I think that is sort of part of why we say, well, maybe there are not as many companies that you'd necessarily pick from. Uh, I think the other big trend that I've been kind of watching, and I've been trying to include this in some of the cloud news of the week stuff is it, as I can connect the dots for people is, you know, we're seeing more cross industry uh, acquisitions, cross industry partnerships. And in some cases, these, you know, start off as being, you know, within, within an industry. So for example, like CVS, the the drugstore pharmacy bought Aetna, the insurance company, which was sort of like, okay, let's let's consolidate this broader supply chain. But then you see those companies maybe making a, a partnership with a Microsoft or an AWS around, you know, healthcare analytics or something. And so I think those are going to be things that we're going to kind of follow on the show going forward is is less about just you know funding for a start a a technology startup and more like okay let's help folks connect the dots between this industry trend in a specific vertical with this other thing you know what's the supply chain look like what what part what do these partnerships look like and the partnerships have been really really big you know i mean yeah. like, you know tens of billions of dollar types of things Yep. And it's, you know, it goes back to, again, the the theme that we have with Corey coming up, it's, it's all about following the money. And we've been, you know, we've even kind of said that, you know, either publicly or behind the scenes for as long as this podcast has been around, um, you know, that is the easiest way to see some of these emerging trends and, and watch things develop them. And, and, and so with that, I'll kind of close us out here. Um, Corey is going to be coming up right after this, and uh, we're really, really looking forward to uh, his insights. Yep. Today's show is sponsored by Snowflake. 
the only data warehouse built for the cloud. Today, organizations need the agility that rapid data insights bring to stay a step ahead of the competition. With Snowflake, you can instantly and infinitely scale your data warehouse with the touch of a button, delivering deep insights at any time for all your users. So start your journey today towards data-driven decision-making by going to snowflake.com slash cloudcast. That's snowflake.com slash cloudcast. And we're back, and we are kind of about a quarter of the way, uh, halfway through our 4 for 400 series as we you know cross the 400 mark. And you know we thought, you know, as we talked about in the opening with Aaron and I, um, you know, we're really going to focus this show on sort of follow the money. And we've been talking about that, you know, how the clouds evolved over the last six, seven, eight years. And we thought if we're going to really dive into this, let's go and get the person who's really become maybe the most visible and well-known person about following the money. Great to have Corey Quinn, cloud economist, Quinny Pig, back on the show. Corey, great to have you back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's one of these things when you do podcasts and you end up doing them a lot, you, you feel like you talked to somebody just recently and we looked and we said, man, it's, it's been over a year since we had you on the show. Um, at the time, we were really fascinated in uh, all the stuff you were doing when last week in AWS was just coming out as a newsletter. And you are all over the place now. You're, uh, you're doing the newsletter. Obviously, you're still the, the cloud economist, you know, helping people with bills has exploded. You've got a great podcast going on. Give folks a sense if they might have missed that show. Shame on them. Um, you know, who are you? What are you working on? And what are all the things you're about? Sure. The newsletter is a thing that almost everyone's aware of. Uh, it winds up gathering all the news from Amazon's cloud ecosystem, strips out the parts I don't find personally interesting, and then makes fun of whatever's left. That sort of ties in occasionally with Twitter, where I live tweet various stream of consciousness style things, various cloud provider events. And that's all fun, entertaining. It's great to go and tell stories about what I'm up to. But mostly what I do on a day-to-day basis is I go into large companies and help them understand and reduce what they're spending on AWS, which is what I spend majority of my time on, but also the thing I generally find myself talking about in public the least for very obvious reasons. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, we were we were doing some recaps of the show here and we were kind of, you know, looking back on things and, you know, now AWS is part of, you know, it's part of the vernacular. It's part of everybody's day in the life and they kind of compare them to them. And we went back and, and we said, well, when the show got started, they were less than a billion dollar company. They're now, you know, greater than a thirty billion dollar company. So obviously, people are spending money on AWS, and there's lots of headlines these days. How much does Apple spend, or Lyft, or whoever? But for just your regular day to day customers, you're not Apple, you're not Lyft. Kind of walk us through, you know, the kind of how you help. Not so much how you help people, but like, what is your life once you start just using the public cloud? What does your spend look like? What is your understanding of the bill look like kind of what is what is the world of being all in on public cloud especially from a spending perspective the answer and it's surprisingly unhelpful is that it depends Uh, my production environment in aws costs me about 30 dollars a month Uh, my clients in aggregate spend about a billion dollars a year and there's an entire spectrum in between those two worlds and most of us fall onto that there are at least reportedly outliers in both directions but i tend to smile nod and move on the the way that i tend to see it is that it just depends on first what the business's goal is and how they came to the cloud were they born in the cloud and it just sort of grew and suddenly their business catches fire and now the bill is monstrous are they migrating from previous on-premise on-premises data centers into a I guess, a more cloudy environment? Are they doing a lift and shift? Did the shift not work out nearly as well as everyone always says it would when they're selling something? It comes down to more or less figuring out what it is that drives spend and what companies care about. 
for example, a number of customers don't actually care about what they're spending in terms of dollars and cents. They care much more about the fact that they don't know how to predict it on a month-to-month basis. And it turns out that people in finance care more about predictability than they do actual dollars and cents in most cases. And for these businesses, that's very often the right answer. Yeah. I'm curious about that because I know at one point in time, uh, you know, so Amazon – you can buy a whole lot of different ways. You can buy it on demand. You can buy it spot and, and other things. And and we've seen some other cloud providers like Google, uh, at least at one point in time, said, oh, we're going to get creative. We're going to do this thing where, you know, the more you use, the lower your prices get. You don't have to think about that. Like, are there different sort of personas of people who who have to deal with the bill? Obviously, you know, if I'm if I'm a developer, people are telling me to write code. If I'm a project manager, like you said, I want to be able to project things and predict things. And like, how, how do the different personas you find kind of interact with that bill? Because obviously, like you said, predictability is a big deal for some, but for others, they're like, look, not my problem, dude. How, how do you deal with all those different perspectives? Mostly with a series of meetings and conversations. I joke sometimes it feels more like it's group therapy about the AWS bill than it is anything that involves technical wizardry. But very often you'll find that the person who gets the bill in finance sees an enormous bill from Amazon, possibly has a heart attack, and when that's finished, wonders how many books engineering is buying. They have conversations with people and come to find out that the engineer is spinning up a bunch of stuff and forgetting to turn them off because we're all human. We all forget that stuff. Uh, has no ability to see the bill themselves. It's organizational distance. It's lack of best practices, lack of guardrails. Companies tend to lend themselves to gross overreactions. It becomes more of a story about cloud governance than it often does about actual technology or even about actual spend. Yeah. Um, There's a whole industry that has spun up over a lot of years um, of of kind of consulting companies who help people, uh, you know, manage their Oracle bill, you know, actually not so much manage your Oracle bill, but manage how do you negotiate with Oracle? And I'm curious, you know, you're helping people directly with their bill. There are, uh, you know, there are companies who have services that will monitor your billing and, and stuff like that. Like what, what is the the negotiation sort of standing that goes on between companies and, and AWS. I mean, is it is it sort of similar to what they've known with vendors? Is it really different? Or you know, I mean, like how how do people go about negotiating if, if price becomes an issue or their bill becomes too big or something? Well, now that those deals are becoming more public and people are aware of them, I'm coming out of the shadows a little bit. I've been helping negotiate those for well over a year for a majority of my clients. The the problem becomes less about negotiating even directly with AWS. To be very direct, the contracts themselves are relatively templated and cookie cutter. There's not a lot of variance uh, unless you measure that variance in years rather than between customer A or customer B. Different discount levers, different um, commitment spend, different commit to spend. That's easy. But what often it turns out is that internally to a company, there's a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, Easy example. If you have your lawyers demanding a custom SLA from AWS. You can go back and forth with that for six weeks. And let me spoil that for you. AWS will not grant a custom SLA for anything that I've ever seen. And I've asked. So finding that out early on in the process and letting your attorneys know that that's off the table before you waste months of negotiating time and not getting discounts during those negotiations can speed things up. Conversely, they will bend on specific requirements around indemnification and figuring out what your company wants and what's strategically important versus we want to feel like we're getting a good deal, which, hey, I get it, but that doesn't drive a business outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 
so I'm, I'm curious, and I don't know if we're, we're far enough into this. You know, you mentioned we're seeing more of these longer-term contracts. You know, on one end, you mentioned, well, people don't always necessarily know what they're going to spend. They can't maybe can't predict it or, you know, things go better than they expected. Their spending goes up. Have you seen any instances yet where people, you know, I mean, there, there's always going to be some traditional purchasing people or people that have purchased from other vendors and they go, yeah, this three-year deal, five-year deal, whatever it is, sounds great. And then maybe after year one, they go, oh, wow, we're, we're really off our projections. Is it, is it something that AWS has been known to come back to if you know, things are way out of whack? Or is it just, hey, man, you should have gotten smarter and, and negotiated better? I've never yet heard of a story where a customer is way over where they thought they would be and starts screaming for help. And Amazon has not been responsive. No one is on the other side of this issue. No one wants there to be significant waste in cloud. The problem is, is that there's some things you can do upfront today that will blow off significant uh, percentages from any given AWS bill, the low-hanging fruit. Like if you have a $100 million a year spend, you know, I can blow off $10 bucks in the course of a week. The second $10 bucks is going to require a bit of engineering rework, and the third $10 bucks is going to require taking hostages in Seattle, which we do only for our premier clients. The problem that you see as you go down this path is at some point you hit an area of diminishing returns and the architecture that you chose in the early days does lend itself to a certain costing model. The challenge comes down at that scale is less about predictability than you would expect. The large variances on a month-to-month basis, it turns out, are a lot smoother once you have a certain baseline level. If I leave something running in my $30 a month account and it costs me 200 bucks, that's a huge percentage difference. You sort of have to leave a second internet running to wind up moving a $10 million monthly bill into the $30 million a month range. Right. It generally tends to stabilize at that point, with obvious exceptions around monthly one-offs like purchasing reserved instances or whatnot. Gotcha. I, you know, like you mentioned, uh, part of what you're doing is, is consulting and, and helping people you know, be efficient with their money. And I have to imagine some of it is uh, more psychologist sort of consulting, right? There's, there's stages of, of grief. Like you, like you said, you get that first bill. Like, what do you, how, how do you find, uh, you know, ways that you, you have to become psychologist in that, and that how much of it is uh, uncertainty, how much of it's excitement that, you know, Hey, we, we got past shadow it and we're doing these cool things. And then there's, there's this fear of like, yeah, my bill was five million last month, but will it be like how does how, how does that typically sort out with people? And and are, have you found any good tricks to sort of just be educating people to be better prepared for what's coming, or or you know even just plan for things better, not just be surprised? Well, one of the arguments I like to make when people say that cloud's expensive is always well compared to what? If you double AWS's current annual revenue and then keep going, you're at Dell's annual revenue in 2012. The, there's a reported two trillion dollar IT industry. And with global cloud spend somewhere in the realm of $160 billion, these are still early days. The idea of being able to see what the benefits of this are is important. If you're moving from on-prem data centers into a cloud environment solely to save money, I've, I've got some bad news for you. You're not going to hit short-term losses. Sorry, you're not going to hit short-term returns on that. You are, however, going to discover pretty quickly that people's time, is valuable. And that's something that's always easy to forget in these typical TCO calculations, where 
people are no longer focusing on, as Amazon likes to say, the undifferentiated heavy lifting. You don't need to hire a team of people whose sole job it is is to run around data centers replacing hard drives all day. Having done that myself for a while, I don't recommend those jobs to anyone. But Amazon does that better than almost anyone else, except probably the other large cloud providers. There are economies of scale that make sense. And how quickly you can swap hard drives is not a differentiating factor for anyone's business. It's not about saving money, not in the strategic sense. It's almost always about speeding time to market. It's about in boosting velocity to get to your next business milestone. You're not going to be able to cost optimize your way into business success. Everyone on the internet exploded when Lyft mentioned that they were committing to, what was it, $100 million a year for a three-year span or something like that on AWS. And the instant two and a half second response on Hacker News was, that's ridiculous. You could cut that money in half if you built your own data centers. Wow, if only the people who took Lyft from a startup idea to a publicly traded company had bothered at some point to question a nine-figure line item in their budget. It's lunacy. It's They've done the numbers on this. And it turns out that when your company is losing $900 million a year, if you double your AWS bill or drop it to zero, it doesn't materially move the needle on your business and its success. And spending the level of capital investment to build out something equivalent to AWS, which, spoiler, is way more than $100 million bucks a year right. in terms of staffing time, in terms of purchasing stuff with capital expenditures, it, it doesn't get you any closer to your goals and serves more as a distraction and loss of focus than anything else. Yeah. No, I, I, it makes sense. And it's, you know, it is, like you said, it is the, the constant thing that people can never – I don't know what the, what the, uh, what the, the phenomenon is, but people can't ever kind of wrap their head around a really big number because they always kind of apply it back to something that, you know, like, oh, $100 million, that's that's the biggest number in the world because my salary is this, or that's what my home payment is, or my car payment, or whatever it is. And so, yeah, it is it is difficult sometimes to, to get people out of the perspective of um, sometimes big numbers aren't really big numbers in the, in the bigger picture of things. Um, all, we have a false victim to that. I take a look at what I charge my customers, then I take a look at what their AWS bills are, and there, there's more zeros on one of those than the other, <laughs> definitionally, and it, it becomes a different story. People love telling other people that they're spending money incorrectly or that they're doing it wrong, and hey, I'm no exception to that. I wound up building an entire business around it. The yeah. difference is, is that I don't start off by assuming that the person's making poor decisions because invariably they're not. Right, right. Do you, do you see um, – obviously – you know, AWS got started a number of years ago, you know, very focused on, hey, build new things here. And over time, they've become, hey, there's no reason why all of your IT shouldn't run here. Uh, you live out in San Francisco. Obviously, you know, you, you mentioned you're up in Seattle a bit. Um, I would imagine you're seeing customers in, in broader and broader geographic regions. Are you seeing kind of the, the people that, that may have been more that traditional IT getting on board with this? everywhere or, or do you still see some some geographicness to it does it still have uh you know kind of west coast silicon valley nature to it or is this just it's everywhere and it's just a matter of how fast people are going to get on board with it i see a lot i think that the net new story is always better when it comes to do we do this in cloud or not the answer to that is usually yes with an asterisk next to it because there's always weird exception cases as far as taking an existing investment in that is on-prem and investing this and, and effectively migrating all of that into something new and exciting and different that requires a little bit more deeper analysis not too much though because at some point you see companies who have spent a year and a half doing the number calculations on all of this at which point 
maybe maybe just pick a direction and go with it. You're not going to recoup this level of time and delay. Analysis paralysis is very real. We are seeing people transition uh, historical workloads to the cloud. Uh, a common IT story as well that I think gets overlooked a lot is heavily regulated industries. They love things like Amazon Workspaces, runs a Windows desktop equivalent in an AWS region, and you just have a thin client or something like that locally. Suddenly, this makes an entire world of compliance, of management, of ensuring that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It becomes a lot faster. That is, We're seeing more adoption of that than we are in, I guess, more relaxed companies who don't have that regulatory burden. It's... It's really interesting to see. Every time I think I've seen everything and it's starting to get boring, all I have to do is go and talk to one more customer and I'll discover something I hadn't considered before. Yeah. I'm continually amazed by the breadth of use cases people have. It's really been a humbling experience. At no point in my life will I ever again walk into an environment, see something that makes no sense and come back with a, this is stupid. Instead, you come back with a, there's very clearly a constraint. I'm missing. What is it? Because people don't generally set out in the morning hoping to make a terrible series of decisions today unless they work at Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, 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 know, you get a chance to see a lot of companies. Uh, you get a chance to see a lot of their bills. Um, you know, there, there's some good reports that come out that talk about uh, you know, people that, that have similar visibility. And they say, well, you know, here's roughly the five or six biggest services that, that are driving Amazon revenue. And, and nothing's super... Mm-hmm. Unusual, you know, it's it's compute and it's storage and it's database as a service. It has a majority of global spend. Yeah, exactly. Has there been anything you've seen? Obviously, you know, they're always coming out with new stuff, and uh, you know, sometimes we're like, "Huh, that's sort of interesting." I wonder who requested that. Have you seen anything kind of just in terms of usage? Maybe not necessarily spend, but usage that's making you think, "Okay, this is going to be the next." big thing. And, and I, I would suspect maybe serverless might be your Lambda might be the immediate answer. But like outside of that, are you seeing any other trends yet that haven't really completely bubbled up to the surface, but, but you're just seeing this new pattern people are using? Serverless is the easy answer on that. You're right. But a different one is also that I'm seeing a big push towards containerization. Hmm. But what's strange about that, if you take a look at what most responsible grownups are doing with containers on AWS, historically, it's been ECS. Uh, because EKS, their managed Kubernetes project, is still kind of sad. And Fargate is still fantastic, but I'm not seeing that adopted in huge numbers yet because there was historically a bit of an economic issue that they've since fixed with a pricing change, but that's recent. What makes ECS strange, though, is that I I see it, but I don't see it because you're charged for the EC2 instances you run containers on, but if you're not charged for ECS itself, there's, there's a few registry charges here and there that round to zero. That tends to show up only when people go through their bills alphabetically rather than by uh, the big numbers first. Hmm. And that is something that is fascinating because from a static analysis of a bill or looking at where the spend goes, you don't see whether or not someone is using a lot of containers or whether they're still just building custom AMIs. If you call it AMI, you're wrong. It winds up turning into a different story where it's there's a lot of neat things you can do, but you can't tell much about someone's architecture just by looking at the bill unless there's something hilariously out of band. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, listen, man, we have we've covered a bunch of things as always. We uh, we love the insight and folks, uh, you know, we joke, but Corey runs a great show called Screaming in the Cloud uh, podcast that is really kind of a lot of a lot of cloud personalities, but uh, really diving in with a lot of people that are that are doing very interesting things. So if you ever get sick of this show or you just want another one, go check out Corey's other one. Let me ask you one last uh, one last thing, and I'll, I'll kind of hit you up for some ways for people to to pick your brain. Um, you 
sort of started as being very snarky with AWS. Uh, there's also a ton of folks at AWS that love that you point out things to them. Do you ever have this fear that that maybe you're kind of going to become Robert Scoble 2.0? Or what is your relationship with the AWS folks? Is it is it this this love fest with the teams? Or do you have this fear that uh, Andy Jassy or or uh, or Jeff Bezos is going to come, you know, looking for you sort of uh, Saudi style and, and find out dirt on you? I've got to be very honest and say that I am not entirely sure whether Andy Jassy knows exactly who I am, or has no idea who I am. And Each possibility is equally terrifying in a different way, but by and large, I found the AWS people to be extremely receptive to customer feedback, always, and that predates me being a loud jerk of the internet. The, I guess the ethos behind AWS has always been customer obsession. They say that, and I thought it was a corny marketing term for the longest time, and then I started seeing it everywhere I looked, and corny or not, they do at least try to live by what they espouse publicly. The bill, of course, being a whole separate exception case to that. I've been invited to do interesting things with AWS previously. I have, I'm given um, access for my own podcast to folks that I very honestly have no business speaking to, but they make themselves available out of a uh, excess level of generosity. And I don't think I've ever gotten any negative pushback. I have been asked pointed questions about my criticisms of various services. And I generally don't make criticisms that I can't back up. So that turns very quickly into, what's your problem? Away from that into, huh, you're right. How do we fix that? And those become the interesting nuanced conversations. I've never been asked to shut up. I've never been asked to stop doing a thing that I'm doing. And for better or worse, that seems to have worked out so far. Very cool. Very cool. It's always. Let me try not to change that before the, this episode airs. <laughs> Very cool. It's good to find folks that uh, are accepting of having, uh, you know, senses of humor and uh, and not like you said, you know, just want to make things better for folks. Real quick before we go, uh, what's the best way for anybody to, you know, either find out all of your good works or maybe get in touch with you if uh, if they want some help in making their uh, financials or economics of cloud better? It all starts at lastweekinaws.com. There's a ridiculous platypus mascot named Billy, who is also our SVP of corporate communications because we make terrible choices. And there's effectively are links to all of the various nonsense that I'm involved in. Very, very cool. Folks, uh, you know, we've been trying to bring on a lot of our favorites this week for the four and 400 shows. It is great to have Corey back. We hopefully get a chance to talk to him again sooner than a year or however long it's been. Corey, thank you so much for all the time as always. And folks go check out the stuff he works on, whether it's the newsletter, whether it's the podcast, or if he can help you, you know, make your business better. So with that folks, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you for telling a friend and thank you for rating the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 